Coyote Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. From professional trumpeter to musical entrepreneur and performance coach consultant, Glastonbury to Google, James Wilkinson has worked with many of the world's most famous music and media companies as a musician, producer, manager, and music supervisor. Up next on Celebs Fight, we've got James Wilkinson. Where do we find you in the world? What's happening in your life and how are you doing? I'm I'm in London, uh, West London, uh, Richmond. It's quite leafy around here. It's a, a bright morning. It's been sort of uh, changeable, but I think we're good. We're good for the day. So now let's rewind to the very beginning of your entertainment journey. At what age did you think, cool, I want to... Go- travel this route in this journey and how does that accumulate it to where we are today it depends who you ask if you were to ask my parents they would say you know it was when i took a, a long sort of probably about a meter and a half post horn you know the old-fashioned post horns that they used to a bit like a sort of very long trumpet without valves and uh at two years old i was able to make a sort of more meaningful noise than most adults from two years old i was pestering my my parents to play trumpet but uh uh, as a lot of people know with wind instruments, it's not advisable to give children uh, instruments too early. So I, I so I couldn't start until I was about 11. It's all to do with teeth and development and stuff like that. From then, I, I just quickly romped through the grades until I got to around uh, sort of 15, 16 years old and to my grade eight. And my trumpet teacher started getting me professional gigs. So whilst I still had the Saturday supermarket job in the evenings, I would be going and playing trumpet, getting 50 quid in my pocket. And, uh, you know, maybe being bought a curry and a beer and at 15, 16 years old, you know, that was ace. That was amazing. So so I sort of thought, hmm, there might be something in this. And I'm making a decent amount of money because 50 quid back then when my dad was giving me about a fiver a, a, a month or something was a huge amount of money. That's kind of what got me thinking that music may be a career for me. And what attracted you to the trumpet of all, of all instruments? I'm actually quite introverted in my in, in my sort of, you know, I do like to sort of recoil and retreat and uh, recover uh, after sort of social events. So I think picking something that was loud and uh, I did a lot of orchestral trumpet playing. So it was, um, uh, that was certainly in my youth. You make a wrong note on the trumpet and you hear it. So I think that was to make up for my introvertedness. I, I picked a sort of very extrovert, noisy instrument that didn't matter if you had a whole orchestra or band uh you could still hear me if i made a mess of things and so it kept me on my toes <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you mentioned you played with the orchestra and you played with bands so what's the difference between those two and do, would you prefer one or the other or equally the same well it's a good question i mean i was very classically trained as a as a musician early on and um it was only really when i went to university that i sort of got to know the difference i was playing in youth orchestras and things like that and traveling you know we did some sort of tours around Europe and it was just lovely to really just have that power of an orchestra behind you I mean a band has a lot of power but there's just something about a truly organic experience of of an orchestra as opposed to sort of maybe an amped up uh, electronic version of things that I've done in latter years and I really enjoyed that as a sort of uh, as an experience and also when I got when I got into university I was doing music at university I was then pulled by uh, a friend of mine now a dear friend who's a film composer he got me in 
to he just said he had a jazz band he said come come and play um i was completely scared of playing jazz playing pop playing anything you know i was very straight laced when it came to playing and i was worried that you know i was just going to make a, a big mess up because as a classical player it was all about getting it right not being heard doing anything wrong when the music stopped you stop you know you don't sort of there's no sort of odd note that suddenly pops out at the wrong moments and I'd had some terrible near misses in my teens uh, with orchestral playing you know where I'd been sort of tarantara and I'd sort of maybe was slightly behind the beat or something and I'm, I'm there going pop and the rest of the orchestra stopped you know it's it's cr- crushingly embarrassing yeah <laughs> so you learn that you need to be a little bit square a little bit straight on these things and so joining a jazz band was it was like a total square popping an E for the first time and uh <laughs> joined this jazz band my friend said don't worry about it um i said where's the dots he said there are no dots you just listen to the music you know there's no music there the dots i mean by the the manuscript and so he allowed me to uh just sort of mess about for the first couple of things and i was sort of still a bit stressed about sort of getting it right and so my comment to him and i remember this because i knew it was cheeky i said to him don't tell me what key the piece is in I, i obviously don't even tell me what piece it is you start and i'll play and i will try and do it all by ear i mean after all it's jazz so the first note can be blue right yeah. <laughs> and so basically this guy sort of looked at me thinking, mm, all right, uh, we'll, we'll give it a go. And it was great because, you know, I was quite good at bending notes. So, you know, I'd be slightly then bend to the, to the right. They all thought that was cool. And that was, you know, jazzy. I kind of cut my teeth doing the jazz stuff and people started realizing I was more of a meaningful player for, for bands and things. And some people were doing covers and some people were having originals projects at university. So I would just sort of join in and just sort of play whatever whatever was needed, really. And then it was before I finished university, I was traveling back uh, to the West Country where my parents uh, lived and I kind of grew up just between Bath and Bristol. And uh, I, I was in London now at university, this thing, and I've remained since. Crossed paths with an old trumpet friend of mine from Bath. And he brandishing this sort of very cool, very cool record, which had a, a tiger on the front. And I was, I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's a cool record. What, you know, what have you been up to? He said, well, I've just been playing with this unsigned band at the moment, uh, just on, on Radio One, on one of the sort of live sort of shows. And so I was like, wow, that's absolutely amazing. This is a guy I used to sit in orchestras with. And, and he's now, he's now on the same journey as me getting into this sort of playing outside the box sort of thing, playing off the dots. Uh, and so we had a good chit chat and I sort of said to him, well, that's really cool. If you need an extra trumpeter, just literally threw it as a passing comment. So this band would started getting signed, uh, you know, or in the process of getting signed, there are lots of, lots of different mouths to feed. And I, and I suppose this was several months later and I just left university and I started working for, uh, V2, which was a record label after he sold Virgin. Um, and I was just working in a sort of lowly grub job. And he gave me a call. This is my friend Neil he gave me a call and he said, uh, we need, we need another trumpeter. We're doing a, a gig at the jazz cafe in Camden. So I was like, suddenly got to get a bit twitchy because I thought, wow, you know, the jazz cafe is like world famous venue for jazz. You know, in, in a venue like that, I'd sort of messed about with my friends, sort of jazz bands in, in smaller gigs. But this was, this was sort of, I suppose, big time playing outside of my comfort zone in non classical. And, and so I was, I was, Brought along to this band. We had a sort of half an hour rehearsal. Here's the part. Um, nothing written down. He would sort of hum it to me and whatever. And then I'd try and sort of remember it. And then we've got the gig tonight. 
that's it. Go and have a beer and just get it right. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the jazz cafe is very cool. It's got a little gallery and there's some stairs down the side. And this band, they were only playing four songs and I was only playing on one of them. And so I, we, the trumpeters, when the, their song kicked in, we walked down this sort of stairs on the side and then walked onto the stage all kind of bopping along to the music and all this sort of stuff. And then we sort of lined up and, and sort of hit play really and just, and just went for it. And, uh, of course, you know, that then got me sort of in as, as a session player with, the, with this band. And that night in the audience, there was also A&R from V2. There was A&R from various other companies, uh, there. And they were sort of, you know, what the hell's our little marketing bar assistant guy where it runs the sort of cafe and be, what the hell's he doing up on stage with this band that we want to sign this really cool band. And it was the beta band. And of course okay. in the nineties, the beta band were, you know, middle page spread in NME, you know, they were the band that you came off stage. And I remember in 99, you know, you come off stage and there's no Gallagher in the dressing room. It's all, all that kind of stuff. You know, very, very, very cool. The band that other bands wanted to see and had influence uh, you know, they were famously synced in high fidelity, you know, in that record shop scene where the guy basically says, I'm going to watch me sell these records and he puts yeah. it on and then people came up to him and, Oh, I want this record. I want this one. So of course I was there playing with this cool band, you know, this sort of this uh, classical geek who uh, suddenly sort of suddenly playing this very cool band. Um, and I wasn't part of the band as a main, a main fixture. I mm-hmm. was just on, it was just the sort of sidelines of really getting in and playing with, just playing when they were in town in London or occasionally around different things or when they even had really big gigs. So, you know, I did get to do the infamous, famous and the wonderful Glastonbury, which, mm. uh, I'd only ever been a punter and, uh, so stepping out onto that stage was uh, was really where just seeing a roar of people as far as you can see was probably, you know, an absolutely amazingly, liberatingly ecstatic buzz that I just didn't, I, you know, I think I think I had one beer afterwards and I was just on cloud nine. You know, it was just one of those experiences that carries you on. I probably quote two times in my life where I've never felt quite so high in just naturally, na- natural high well, one time was that, and the other time was when I asked my wife to marry me. Just incredible experience, and it sort of set me, you know, to a long story short, but that really nailed the coffin for me. From that point on, yeah, after the beta band, how yeah. did the trumpeting and the playing of the music continue? Did you carry on doing with other bands, other session work? In, in 2000, actually, which was my last uh, gig, so um, I actually had a, uh, a vein in my mouth, which sort of it corrupted my playing. I had it operated on. They tried to sort of uh, do something with it. It didn't do very well. It oh, actually damaged okay. my damaged my embouchure. And uh, even though I got that back and I was able to play, um, it just meant that the muscles around the left side of my face were weakened. And it just meant I didn't have any stamina. I couldn't play for more than... 10 minutes i persevered i did try to rehabilitate but it just wasn't coming back and uh obviously on a professional gig i couldn't just sort of turn up and have that fail this this is the piece of equipment that i need 
to do this job and uh i was i was in sort of significant equipment failure here so yeah with with quite a heartache really i had to sort of turn my back on what had been nearly 10 years of a career yeah because uh, i'd sort of started in my early teens and and really yeah so that was it and uh kind of set me on course to sort of see what i could do to help other people in music to help them in, in various ways you mentioned helping other artists or performers so mm-hmm. let's unpack that so the people who do not know the differences between who are mm. not in the music industry yeah what roles did you play and what are, do those roles encompass i wanted to be close to musicians and i thought if i can't play then maybe getting in the studio recording them making sure that they can be represented properly you know sonically i'd been around uh live music and studios and i sort of knew that that was something that i didn't actually have a lot of expertise in other than being the performer side so actually in 2001, I did a year's training in, in uh, sound tech and, and, and got my chops up on that uh, and then started sort of doing a bit of work within a studio. I very quickly realized that the sort of late nights and the studio work and things like that just wasn't really my bag. It wasn't going to be my thing. You know, I was away from my fiance at the time and uh, we had a, a wedding that was being planned for 2002. And I just thought this this is not quite right for me. I was glad of learning. I know I was glad to be able to walk into a studio and just see all those flashing lights and know exactly what to do. But I just knew that I wasn't going to be there, you know, being the pilot in in, in that particular venture. 2002, got married and that sort of got me sort of thinking, right, I need to sort of knuckle down, get a proper job. And so I ended up working for Boozy and Hawks. So, and they're obviously one of the world's oldest classical music publishers. With my classical knowledge, it was easy to slot in there. Um, and also my musicianship. I started working in the higher department. So that was hiring out scores to orchestras and liaising with lots, sometimes conductors, or organizers of orchestral stuff, which was really good. Uh, and then, uh, and then, and then obviously I, I moved on to start working in sync because, uh, my, like the music industry, everything gets all shuffled around periodically. And, uh, whilst I was there, I wasn't being made redundant. My job yeah. was being moved to, Mainz in Germany, um, which wasn't where I was wanting to live. And uh, I mean, nothing against Mainz. I mean, I hear it's perfectly okay. I think it's just a sort of out of towner, but it wasn't, you know, like you're going to move to Berlin or Hamburg or somewhere cool. You know, it was just, it's a bit out of town and just a bit ordinary. And I was in London and, I, you know, my life was here. So that really wasn't going to happen. And so for, I sort of looked at what else was on, on offer and there was a, a sync job going. Uh, uh, you know, it was quite early in the sync world. Uh, And this really keys into sort of mostly what I've been doing in publishing the last 20 years in sync and licensing, particularly into the film, TV and advertising worlds. That really allowed me to truly help musicians to be able to take a musician from scratch, get them to write something, whether it's a jingle, whether it's a score for, uh, you know, a film, TV, Mm. advertising type stuff, or to just license some of their tracks uh, or reversion their track. Again, use a lot of my musical abilities and just stretch them a bit and learn how to license them into stuff and and get that going. So really, that's been my bread and butter for the last 20 years. And the journey's been through Boozy and Hawks, which was obviously a great way to cut my teeth. And then uh, And then BMG. Uh, BMG then get resh- got reshuffled and Universal, Universal then bought them. So I was working for Universal for a little bit just by yeah. default. And then it got to around sort of 2007 and I, I was, you know, doing really well, you know, getting lots of, lots of syncs, you know, huge commission work and all that kind yeah. of stuff. 
and really helping the musicians. There was one musician, I remember a story, there was a situation where I had uh, some of the guys in BBC, they literally, they, they stormed into Universal. Who the hell is this James Wilkinson? Why is he taking our flagship programme and our flagship composers and just messing it all up? I then get hauled into my boss's office. Mm. No, James, well, you know, what is this all about? You know, what, what is this all about? What are you, uh, the BBC are obviously a huge client of ours. You know, they're one of the biggest clients we've yeah. got what are you doing and this is one of their biggest flagship things that they do every year the big natural history thing why are you even stirring the porridge here and so i said well you know and this is where i sort of remember trotting out the phrase you, you know you hired a musician first and foremost and i'm afraid there's uh you know some bad behavior you know these, and i probably was effing and blinding and saying it in a lot more uh <laughs> forceful at that point because they were getting quite heated and and uh you know i really thought you know they were being quite mean and totally um uh screwing up this this composer they'd basically sort of said here's the budget uh but you need to spend it all on bbc orchestra and bbc this and by the time we crunched the figures you know the poor composer was going to get probably going to have to pay for the opportunity you know we all know how sick that is in the music industry yeah. so i ended up basically pushing uh pushing for um him to eventually get uh, not only a double album done on universal but also get uh, it was actually a program called wild china so we actually got um the london chinese orchestra to come and work with the bbc orchestra we made this fantastic uh double album which he was on i mean he was already a reasonably good composer but it wasn't wasn't very long before he was getting Ivan the Bellows and various things like that. And also the album that we made with the BBC was then relicensed and more money was made for the company. So, of course, everyone was really happy and patting yes. on the back because the Beijing Olympics, of course, were just around the corner. So oh, yeah. we, we double bubbled on that one. So, of course, sometimes you, you just got to sort of pop the old school boil and just sort of get all the, the dodgy stuff out and uh, clean it up and, 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 and motor on, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your thoughts of, you know, previously we had CDs, we had vinyls, we had cassettes. Those are making a mm. massive comeback, which I'm very grateful for because I love me a CD. But mm. we've got these digital platforms, streaming platforms. Your thoughts of the differences between the two and do you prefer which one? Financially, I thought um, certainly CDs and vinyl and tapes to a certain extent. I mean, I see tapes that, you know, they're, they're nice, but the thing is, you know, obviously CDs and vinyl are superior sound yeah. qualities. So but CD and vinyl are, and they still are, obviously, they are the most superior uh, to anything we've got out there. Um, we don't have a mechanism, sadly, for digital to really pay uh, musicians adequately. I think it was Snoop Dogg hijacked a, a media conference quite recently to to shout about uh, uh i'm paraphrasing but he was talking about having a billion streams yes and why doesn't the artist get a million pounds for that yes you know and and talking about how you know he would have found it much harder to even have started you know um and, and i do think it's quite criminal that it hasn't really worked piracy yes was one thing but actually we now have institutional piracy because it seems that the music isn't trickling down to, to the musicians in it, it, at all, unless you really are a sort of huge superstar, like yeah. a sort of Ed Sheeran or, you know, someone who really does have billions and billions of streams on all their stuff. And of course, 
you know, they will always be seen by the uh, performance rights organisations to as part of the, you know, the bankers that gone through the glass ceiling. Yes, we will pay those artists. But if you're a small guy who's done a few thousand here and a few thousand there, you've really got to fight for those pennies that you're going to get through. And if you imagine that, you know, you could even if you used to sell 100 mm. CDs for £10, you know, each or something like that. That then funds your your petrol, your van to go to do the next gig, maybe yep. to buy some T-shirts or, or whatever. You know, it, that's gone to a certain extent. This revival of having CD and vinyl back and having artists, particularly bigger artists, I've noticed it now, are standing next to the merch stands after gigs. Huge artists. And they're happy to spend half an hour doing a meet and greet. Some of them, if they're a real superstar, they might have these VIP tickets or maybe yeah, yeah. pay a bit extra for a you know, a session with them. Because obviously, if you're in a stadium, they can't just stand there for hours and hours and hours, <laughs> yes. especially having done a gig. I've been to places where there's three, four, 400, you know, maybe a thousand capacity with a reasonable size artist, you know, they'll stand there for, you know, an hour, hour and a half, and they'll just be signing everything. A, it makes everybody buy the merch much, much more, because exactly. they all think, oh, great, you know, um, I, and, and they get a little chat, and, you know, and they get a thank you, and they get, you know, to hear that connection, and I've really seen an uptick in this since uh, since COVID. And I think it's just, uh, I, th- I think that has helped really bring that connection or that need or want for connection yeah. back. And again, you have connection with a physical product. If you're just there stroking along your sort of cassettes or your vinyl and you suddenly pick something out and then you can just look at it and you can read the back of it while it's playing or, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, rather than just having Spotify boobling on in the background, that's, that's it. You just, it's almost, you switch off and it just becomes, yeah. it's not a special occasion. It's like yeah, when yeah. you put a record on, you put a CD on, you sit down, you know, and you just, you can have that moment. And also you're probably going to listen to the whole album as it was intended by the artists. And you can really get into the mindset. What was the story they're telling here? And that sort of thing, rather than just having playlists full of odd little tracks here and there. Mm. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to go back to that sort of album thing. And I'm not being overly nostalgic. You know, I do think progress progression is is important. But for goodness sake, let's pay the artists now. The experiments worked or the experiments taken over what the status quo that was. Now let's pay the artist. So it's interesting you're speaking about the downloads and that because I was at a concert this past weekend. You know, I'm very comfortable going to concerts by myself and I made some friends and I was explaining to them that did they know that an artist gets like 0.005 cents or however much ridiculous money they get per stream? And they're like, no, we didn't know that. And I said, so when you see the artists going on about, oh, they got 500 million or they got uh, whatever streams, they got like, a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars, how much, however much it works out to. And all these people completely shocked. And it's interesting that there's a disconnect in the communication because also what happens is I see the artists, I've got 500 million streams on, you know, downloads and this, you know, they see it as a, as a accomplishment, but then they don't also say, Oh, well, I only got two thousand dollars. <laughs> As well. So I mean, it creates like, this confusion oh, by the listening audience. I, I agree. And, and I think that if artists were to leverage the public and allow them, you know, a bit like Snoop Dogg, this, this little clip went viral. You know, and I think that's great that the public are starting to cotton on to the fact yeah. that there just isn't, it's not actually uh, translating what they're doing. And convenience, you know, has just out, outweighed sort of business logic. Yeah. And for a lot of artists, I mean, they're, they're almost treating records. And I remember hearing someone, an exec, a few years ago at um, a record label telling me 
uh, Pierce, and they were telling me, well, you know, the record's really just a, it's just a marketing tool now. You know, it's like, you know, it's just an awareness tool. When you, when you have sync and when you have, uh, live, you know, it just gets people down to the gigs and gets people. And that's why also at the same sort of time, you had the ticket prices starting to shoot up, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Suddenly you were seeing an artist for maybe 50, 60 pounds or equivalent of. And then you suddenly now that same artist, you know, you might be 200 quid or, you know, or 150 or, or yep. whatever for those artists. And that, that it's really just so, but there's been no conversation with the public. There's yep. no conversation with why that's happened. It's just so the public are thinking, why are these artists, you know, on their ivory towers and their yes. high horses, you know, why are they suddenly ripping us all off the fans, blah, blah, blah. And actually the reality is, is that, um, as we've discussed, you know, that, that, that it's one of the last areas where they can actually get some money back and of course touring and gigs and especially if you're doing it in a very big sense costs a fortune costs a lot of money so so they have to get their money back somehow if spotify was switched off tomorrow what would happen i get the feeling that suddenly these torrents would get hold again and you know i'm not an arbiter of doom uh, uh, i mean i to be honest i don't care actually because if they're not getting paid anyway then why should anyone get paid why should they not just be file sharing a bit like you know when People used to make a mixtape for their friend. That was file sharing, very slow format of yeah. doing that. You've got people or burning CDs or whatever. I, I remember talking to a guy, he was 21 years old. I was at a wedding a couple of years ago and he's still at, just finishing university. And he said, I've got nearly half a million tracks on my computer that I've downloaded. And I started thinking, well, you know, say they're 70 pence per track. Where the hell has that kid got all that money from to do that? Yeah. Obviously, I knew he hadn't paid for them. But I suddenly thought, that's a lot of money that's yeah. just fallen out of the system just because he managed to download them off some torrent and then his mate, he shared them. He probably can share his whole catalogue you know, now with computers the way they are and cloud and everything. Probably within 10 minutes, he probably just basically get, send that to someone. That's a lot of money dropping out of the system. That's just one kid with his record collection that he's got for nothing. And that's more than some artists might earn in say five years starting up their career that's stealing i mean it's a, oh yeah what a lot of these people don't realize is sure. that they're actually stealing yeah but they're like oh why should i have to pay for it and they it doesn't sink in to them that they're stealing mm. and they are damaging the industry even more sure they, they don't understand that there's been now these torrents things you know for 20 or 20 odd years now we've had institutional stealing and we've now it's just whatever going on everyone thinks about having a crack copy of x y and z you know yeah. whether it's software whether it's music whether it's whatever and people don't see it as a problem i mean one of the first things that some people do oh where can i get a free download of that and this goes back to your point about physical you know having a cd if you had a cd rom of the software or the music or the whatever you would the film dvd or whatever you know that's tangible when it's just a file that you're sharing there's a massive disconnect with the value in that it's not actually worth as much for instance we go back to the example of the kid with 21 nearly half a million tracks he no doubt has probably not listened to most of them yes. he's probably cherry-picked maybe several albums out of it but even if he was just to pay for the bits that he did pay for and just really enjoy it when i was buying cds cds were 15 16 17 pounds buying cds in the sort of 90s and that was a lot that was you know that's a lot of money out of my student school budget whatever pocket money so i would cherish what yep. was i going to buy 
I would go to a shop, probably invariably something like HMV or one of these sort of big shops, and I'd be browsing through. And occasionally, if I felt a bit flush, you know, I'd and, and a band was in the right sort of ballpark of the kind of types of music that I liked. You know, occasionally, I I I would take a punt on buying that album just on the basis of what I read on the the sleeve, or I I, I like their artwork, you know, things like that. Very occasionally, but I'd have to be feeling quite flush to do that. Otherwise, I would be quite considered. You know, I'd have read, may, read some stuff. Maybe I mean pre-internet, right? So I, I would may have read some stuff. I may, maybe I'd heard it at a friend's house. I didn't think about, oh, I, I want to have this on a tape. I thought I want to have a copy of that record because yeah. I really like that artist. I had no concept in my edu- musical education and my sort of education to to think that music should be free or was free but now it's just it's been devalued to the point where it is perceived as free if you can listen to spotify and put up with the adverts or any of the similar sort of streaming services you know you it is free and prior to that you wouldn't get so much stuff you'd listen you'd record something off the radio maybe what is the answer to to suddenly go immediately draconian and put down the as soon as you do that we're in a world of everyone just saying sod off to everyone and I, I just think that we would just drive everybody in, into extreme piracy. If the streaming services, they cost an amount to put on, you know, the tech, the the storage, the music, all that stuff, that's fine. I do think there needs to be a bit more discerning about what goes up there. I mean, now anyone can put anything up. Yes. You know, and we've even seen this with the advent of AI. So obviously, people are trying to make money and they've cottoned onto it and they've taken a few bits and bobs off it. But really, you know, people are creating tracks and just throwing them up there on all the platforms all at once. And, you know, thousands and thousands of tracks, which is just rubbish. There's no quality control anymore. So, of course, that, again, is an own goal that devalues the music that is good up there. And look, okay, you know, I'm not who am I to say what's good and bad? Someone might really enjoy some sort of slightly sketchily recorded bad sort of demo sort of mm. thing but then that's absolutely fine and i'm completely cool with that and if there's a following for it it deserves to be there but i i, I think i think there's a it's we're just gone in the wrong direction it's it's a, it's a malignant growth within the industry that's yep. just spiraling out of control which has zero benefit really other than pr and promotion and even then what pr and promotion what do they care about you know maybe they'll get a better record deal next time because they've got a squillion more streams yeah well that's the case because people are very data driven and that's part of some of the stuff that i do if i'm doing working with companies with a and r and 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 things like that you know we do look at the data of an artist but we've also got to look and consider actually do you know what i love this artist and i really want to help them can't really see them going hugely far i can't see them making us a lot of money but I want to help them. So there's been times where I've reached down and pulled someone up and given them a little bit of a voice just because I like them. Nowadays, my advice to artists is, well, if you're good, get your following, go and do a load of gigs, go, go and get three, four hundred people in six cities, go and stand by the merch stand, sell a load of merch, sell a load of records to them genuinely. You know, even if they nail your record, your vinyl to the wall and then still listen to you on Spotify. Okay. <laughs> at least you sold them something physical. At least they know that you're real. On a positive note, as a final message to the listening audience, <laughs> what would you like to say? I'd like things like, you know, Bandcamp and things like Patreon and various things like that. You know, I think you've got a sm- there's a small artist out there that you would love to support, that you would like to help. Go see them live. Go and buy their T-shirt. Go and 
you know, if they have a Patreon account, you know, drop a fiver in a month so they can buy themselves a few cans of beans. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whatever is needed, maybe be aware, just be aware, you know, that music has an innate value to culture. And without music, there would be no soundtrack to your life. 